This episode of Changing Lenses is for Asian women, BIPOC folks, children of immigrants, all of us racialized people who've never dared to dream because we were never told we could, or taught how to do it in ways that jived with our culture and values. And of course, even if we did dare to dream, there were so many obstacles designed to keep us back and make us quit. Well, today we're going to hear from an Asian American woman who went against the grain and by doing so, found her true self. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, all the examples I saw of business and career success were of white folks, mostly white men, and gradually, more white women. And I learned how to be a leader and manager from them. I believed everything they said about what it took to reach the C-suite, become a high performer, and make a lot of money. But during every training, mentoring, or coaching session, There was always a part of me that said, no, that doesn't feel right. That's not me. That's not my culture. That's not how I think. But if I want success, I guess this is what I have to do. I have to be something different from who I am, from my culture and my personality. So when I met Carissa Begonia, a Filipina-American, daughter of immigrants, former EDI director at Zappos, and now an entrepreneur coaching BIPOC folks to become entrepreneurs themselves, I was so happy. Happy to finally meet an example of someone who is breaking the bamboo mold placed upon Asians by pursuing her dreams, but in a way that I, as an Asian-Canadian immigrant, could relate to. As Carissa says, I am a leadership coach, business coach, helping other folks, particularly BIPOC folks, also start their own things and develop their own businesses. And that's what I take the most pride in and excitement in is helping folks to just pursue with something that's meaningful and purposeful for them, because I think we're all better off if we start to do that. And then how do I actually operationalize that? Because like, it can be really confusing or scary, especially as daughter of immigrants, <laughs> you know, to do that, especially when you don't see a lot of folks doing it. I certainly didn't have it in my family, like entrepreneurs in my family. So it was oftentimes being someone who was the first, the only or the other in spaces, whether that was in corporate or even as an entrepreneur. So if you're a black, indigenous or racialized person who doesn't have a lot of examples in your life of people who look like you doing what you want to do, take a listen to Carissa's story. She tells us about her journey from corporate employee to EDI leader to entrepreneur, coach and CEO. And if you're a white ally or equity, diversity, and inclusion supporter, and you want to know what you can do to make change happen, Carissa reveals the big question that EDI advocates need to ask themselves, as well as what we need more of in future EDI work. If you'd like to connect with Carissa, you can find her on LinkedIn under her full name, Carissa Begonia. You'll also find all her contact details in our podcast show notes at changinglenses.ca. But first, a quick intro and land acknowledgement. Welcome to Changing Lenses. You're invited to step into the lives of people on the front lines of discrimination, racism, and exclusion, to see the world through their eyes, and to hear their personal story of their fight for social justice. I'm your host, Rosie Young, a Chinese-Canadian, immigrant, cis-straight female with invisible disabilities, and I am passionate about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Do you also want to see social change happen? Then please join me in Changing Lenses. Each episode is hosted on colonized land that was taken from many Indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabe, 
the Huron-Wendat, and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. I seek truth and reconciliation with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people of Turtle Island, and I call upon us all to decolonize our thinking, not just our systems. Now please, enjoy the episode. Hi, Carissa. Welcome to the Changing Lenses podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest here today. Of course. Thanks so much for inviting me on to your show, Rosie. I'm excited. I love seeing your smiling face. I'm glad that we're doing a video recording as well so other people can see your smiling face. And I have like a million and one questions I want to ask you because for people who are listening in probably don't know, I first met Carissa when I was sort of in transition myself and thinking, what can I do with my life? And you know, how can I get more socially active and involved? And then here I met this wonderful, smart Filipina woman making it and doing it. Like as an entrepreneur, I'm like, what? <laughs> Asian American women can do that? That's allowed somehow? So we're going to dig into that whole story and how you're an inspiration, not just for me, but for many, many people. But before we do that, I do want to make a psychological safety commitment to you, Krista, and to our listeners. Because, you know, as we talk about race and gender and all sorts of wonderful stuff, things um, might be sensitive and, you know, certainly wanting you to feel comfortable to be real and to be vulnerable and to be your whole self. So I want to commit to you and to our listeners that this is a safe space. And I invite you to keep me accountable to being respectful and non-judgmental and to let me know if I pronounce something wrong or I'm saying something that's making you uncomfortable or it's not a really appropriate thing to say. So that's my commitment to you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for, for offering that and, and for protecting that. And it's always really humbling to hear when folks are like, oh, you've inspired me to do this and that, whatever. And it's kind of funny to be like, what? <laughs> you know? So thank you. I, I appreciate that. And just hearing it and getting more comfortable listening to that kind of, um, hey, like what you are doing, people are watching. So thank you. I was like, oh, okay. Sounds good. <laughs> I will keep doing it. Then. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah. Please keep doing whatever it is you're doing because it's working. And here we can kind of just start diving right into stuff because so core to a lot of inclusion as well, I think is identity. So I want to give you the opportunity to say whatever you want to say about yourself as a, you know, who are you, Carissa, for the people listening to you for the first time today? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I am a, I guess you would say second generation immigrant, daughter of Filipinos. I probably for a very long time have identified as a pretty strong career woman. And now I'm starting to embrace a lot of more creative endeavors, starting with my pursuits as an entrepreneur. So I um, climbed the corporate ladder, very much identified as, you know, corporate woman of color, succeeding in the corporate world. And then recently, or in the last three years, left corporate America. I spent time as a head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Zappos at one point and kind of took this idea that I, I've always been entrepreneurial and finally came to a place where I just was confident enough that I, I can figure something out on my own and decided to do that. So now I'm an entrepreneur. I am a leadership coach, business coach, helping other folks, particularly BIPOC folks, also start their own things and develop their own businesses. And that's what I take the most pride in and excitement in is helping folks to just pursue with something that's meaningful and purposeful for them, because I think we're all better off if we start to do that. And then how do I actually operationalize that? Because like, it can be really confusing or scary, especially as daughter of immigrants, <laughs> you know, to do that, especially when you don't see a lot of folks doing it. I certainly didn't have it in my family, like entrepreneurs in my family. So it was oftentimes being someone who was the first, the only or the other in spaces, whether that was in corporate or even as an entrepreneur, 
it's basically the way I have to explain myself is like, I see gaps and I solve for them. <laughs> so. Okay. I want to ask you to elaborate a bit on that, those gaps pieces, because I, as a racialized woman, I also see gaps. And like, that's what I really felt when I found you is like, wow, here would be a business coach who can understand probably a lot more of my mentality, my background, my context that I'm coming from than frankly, a lot of white people, right? That I see that are, oh, here's how you sell. Here's how you market. And there's always an inherent thing for me. It's like, I don't know that that will work for me. I think that might work for you. And that might work for, you know, other typical white executive sales type things. But there's some nuances there. And I had trouble explaining that with a person I really respect, a white female HR colleague about how coaching, well, if you're a good coach, it shouldn't make a difference what your race is because it's all about the person you're coaching. It's all about helping them and you're trying to take yourself out of it. And I couldn't quite articulate to them why it was still important and why there was a difference. So maybe you can help me articulate, like what are those gaps that you see? Why is it important to you? How are you seeing it play out that it makes a difference uh, that you are a BIPOC woman coach versus a white coach? You know, that's an interesting debate and like a statement. It kind of, for me, feels a little bit like I don't see color, right? A little bit lends itself to me, that kind of statement, in the sense that like we all have some level of bias, right? We all have a comfortability with folks who have more similarities to us, whether that is race, gender, other personalities, experience even, right? Our job is to pull it out of a person. But it all starts with relationships, right? Like if I don't feel connected to you, if I don't feel comfortable with you, I'm not going to tell you, I'll give you all the straight answers, <laughs> especially if we're not relating to another, then it's going to be hard to make that impact as a coach and to receive even the advice or the coaching as the coachee, right? So I think also in the industry, it is very white. And so again, it comes from a space of, sure, you can support whoever you want, but if there are more people who looked like me, would I have at least an option to choose folks that have more commonality or similarities to me? Right now, there's not much of a choice. <laughs> so Yeah, I think this is part of the benefit of having more racialized folks in the space is that so often we self-doubt, right? So often we end up questioning ourselves like, well, this is what I think. And then, you know, someone will tell you, no, that's not how it is. And they're like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. But then the more you talk to other people with similar experiences, it does affirm and it does validate like, yeah, there, there is something there. And then you start realizing how systemic and how pervasive it is as well. Yeah. I think the point is, are there more options and more choices? And right now in the industry, I think it's pretty limited. And that's why for me, it's really excited to be as a coach, as a business coach, to be able to develop more Asian coaches and consultants or, you know, Asian BIPOC coaches and consultants, because I, again, give me the options or other choices. And what I've experienced for particularly as an Asian American entrepreneur and having also hired mostly white coaches in my journey of entrepreneurship is that I also experience like a disconnect, you know, tactically could tell me how to do this, right? I learned a lot operationally about how do I create a successful business from being mentored by these coaches. But one example, for instance, in terms of where I was really struggling was this idea of just just go all in, right? Like, you know, if you didn't have another job or if you didn't quit, like this would take off. And maybe, yeah, and I do have that experience, yes, because I 100% went into my business when I got furloughed from my last consultancy. But I think being told that at the time was my money mindset was very much associated with how my parents operated. They both worked two jobs when I was growing up. So for some time, I was kind of modeling them like I have to grind 
in order to be successful. I have to. So this kind of what felt like flighty at the time, just responsive, like, oh, you know, you don't have to work that hard self-care and all this. I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, my immigrant parents didn't talk about self-care or have self-care. And like, that's like a privilege and a benefit or whatnot. And now I think differently about that. But I think... I was very resistant to that up in the beginning when some of my white coaches were just like, dive in head first. You don't have to have another job and don't worry about like the money will just come. And no, no, I didn't see that. Like, you know, because I didn't see that growing up. I saw quite the opposite. So it was, it was really hard for me to believe it. And I think it's still hard to believe for folks who haven't done it. But I think when I'm sharing, that's where I, my mindset was with my Asian clients. I think there's more trust because they're like, oh, she gets what I, she knows where I'm coming from. So she's, she came from the same background and she still was able to develop a mindset that's different, that's more abundant, right? And I think that just comfort in saying, oh, we do come from a similar place and you can still overcome it, I think allows you to see that as an actual viable option, right? An actual outcome. I completely resonate with that. And that's just another example, I think, of how it really matters. The coach's ability to empathize through lived experience, right? And through background. Because I I feel very similar where I probably did internalize or hear things that maybe my parents weren't exactly saying. Now that I'm older too, I can understand where it's coming from. Like the, it wasn't a don't pursue your dreams, but fear, like fear of scarcity, fear of lack of money. And that's why it's so much better to pursue a stable job. It's for security reasons because they grew up with not very much money. And then as an immigrant, you got to work your butt off because you're constantly running behind people who've been here longer and then you're racialized too. And so all sorts of stuff. So I do get now where that motivation would be coming from and then the pressure that creates. What I really feel when I spoke with you before is the sense of freedom. This is actually what I really want to learn from you in a way and what I think listeners might really benefit from is, yes, you pursued your dreams and your passions. Yes, you did kind of a different path or an alternative path. But you weren't just airy-fairy, oh, I'm going to throw this and see if it sticks to the wall or whatever. Like I'm sure it felt like that sometimes because that's how I feel as well. But you had a plan and you had some structure and you were disciplined about how you're doing that, right? So maybe you can just do a little bit of a, a walkthrough of your journey, how you went from a, this is what you know success looks like, this is what I have to be, which is also a bit of model minority, I think. Right? That's the other bad side of model minority for us. And then you found your own liberation, your own path to do something different from what is considered the norm. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, I think, again, this comes a little bit from my own personality that, you know, I'm supposed to be a nurse as a philistary, typically, right? As a daughter of Filipinos, um, I'm very grateful for my parents of letting me figure it out and not dictating what I had to do with my life. Guiding, but not being like, no, you have to change immediately. So I started off my career really as an analyst for a while and a strategist, and I was good at it. And I was, I kept chasing money. I kept chasing titles and I was successful, but unfulfilled. Right. And my last role, I was at Saks. I did not love it. And I left without a job. And again, fearing my dad being the disappointing dad, being like, why did you, who leaves without a job? And what are you going to do next? You know? And so I immediately panicked and I went to get another job. I got a job like within two weeks at Tommy Hilfiger and I declined the offer because I said to myself, like, it's just going to be more of the same, you know, a higher salary, better title again. And it's like, but it's still the same different day. Right. And so I declined it. And then I went back home to my parents and I, lived there for a few months. I was like, okay, I got to figure out what I'm going to do with myself. Thankfully, my wonderful parents were like, okay, she'll figure it out. Right. 
And then my kind of thought process using my analyst strategy brain was like, okay, stay in retail, but what are some organizations or companies that align with your values? So this pursuit of the strategy, but like, what does your heart tell you want to do? And so it's constantly for me, a combination of both, even how I work with my clients, you know, like what is intuition saying? What is your heart saying? What is your values and such? What do you want to do? Okay, let's now strategically think about how that's going to happen fastest, right? So I didn't get to an entrepreneurial kind of space immediately, you know, but I took steps. And so the first step was like, okay, based on the skill set that someone will hire you, that's your quickest way in. And then from there, you know, a year and a half in, I doing some more strategic planning. Again, I was given responsibility to start a team. And then I, I just found myself really wanting to meet other female entrepreneurs at the company. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this analysis stuff anymore. <laughs> like, I, like I'm kind of over it. And I'm really curious about moving more into people development and such. And so I saw a gap. I was like, hey, we don't have a formal DEI office here or position. So I pitched for one and I got my stuff together with my team of women who helped me kind of put a deck together and such and pitched it and they gave it to me. So here I now find myself patting myself on the back being like, awesome, Carissa, you are the head of diversity, equity, inclusion now at Zappos and then had immediate imposter syndrome. Like, what am I doing? Like, you know, so had gone back and taken some grad courses and such to fill this inadequacy that I was feeling. But in that time, I also became an emotional intelligence coach. My strategy was like very much this belief that how am I going to even hear someone else's story, someone else's opinion or experience if I don't even know my own, if I'm not really clear on my own awareness of myself and such. And so the biggest thing I learned in that role, aside from, you know, more equity strategy and such and things to be concerned about, was also my own cultural identity, my own understanding of like how gender identity, race for me had impacted me. And it kind of took me to the story of when I was nine and my first experience of racism where I was at Disney World of all happy, like happiest place on earth, Safe right? For kids. Yeah, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> not for me. Um, I, that was where racism was like the first time I experienced it. And I had grown up in a white neighborhood, right? And so it was very foreign to me when a little white boy was swimming in the pool and a little white boy pointed at me and was like, I don't want to swim in a pool with Chinese people. And I was so upset. I remember standing there frozen, like seething though. My like threat response is, is fight, <laughs> clearly. And I was mad. Was, there was a lot of rage as a nine-year-old just hearing that. And I was like, I don't understand. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, A, I'm not Chinese. I'm Filipino, actually. And then B, like, what's wrong with either? And I just didn't get it. And having my stoic Asian parents, I never talked about this. I initially didn't tell my mother about this story until, I don't know, like, three years ago or so, because I realized the impact it had on me that I was holding on some of this resentment. And potentially I had talked a little bit about this conditioning that I've had about being more assertive, maybe, or bold or outspoken is because I think from that story and multiple other aggressions, microaggressions over time, saw that I never wanted to be othered again. I never wanted to be different again. And so there was maybe this overcompensation <laughs> with this outspokenness and bold personality to say, I can't change what I look like. I can't change my the shape of my eyes mostly, right? I look Asian, so I'm going to compensate in other ways. And that probably being with a bolder personality to say like, don't mess with me, <laughs> right? <laughs> and again, that served me for some time, but it also didn't feel amazing, right? That was probably the biggest learning I had in that role, in the DEI role. And then, you know, over some time, I think combined with, hey, I, I know I've been 
always, again, leading new initiatives at organizations. And I think that there can be more impact externally. And so I eventually decided that it would be smarter to do my own thing and leave and try yeah, that route of entrepreneurship. And it's like, well, what if I tried to put all of this effort and all of like, you know, my hard work and energy into something I actually gave a crap about? What would happen? And that's really just the, was the question. Like, if I'm successful doing this for other people that I'm only sort of interested in, what if I actually was interested and did it for myself? And why not try? Because you know what? You can always go back. I think there's this idea of like, if you leave, you're never, you can never do that again, or you can't come back. I'm like, no, you can go back. If, if this doesn't work, you can always go back. So it sounds like in your entrepreneurial pursuits now that you've got your business coaching side, and I think you're also doing DEI, external consulting. So there's sort of these two sides to your business. But right now, I want to get into more of the DEI side uh, of things and you know stuff that probably employers would also be really interested in hearing because you've seen it from the inside, you've seen it from the outside. And I'm really interested. I mean, people have been hearing this for at least a year now. We're recording this in 2021. Lots of stuff has happened. We're just coming out of Asian Heritage Month. Have you seen actual momentum and change for the better? What are you seeing happening in the DEI space now? Yeah, I think there is much more openness to trying things that are different in you, right? And I think as consultants too, and even internal DEI folks, asking for what's another solution? What's another way? If we're only looking at unconscious bias training, if we're only looking at, you know, quote unquote, representation and metrics and such, then, you know, we're not doing enough. We're not really pushing the needle. And I think prior to 2020, conversations around race were limited. And now if you're not talking about that, like, what are you actually doing in DEI, right? And so it does feel a little bit like wild, wild, like West type of situation, like what's happening? Like, you know, try and innovate. And I think this is the time for folks to come up with different ideas and pitch them. And so for like, instance, one of the things that I do that I didn't think was so novel was this intersection of DEI and EQ, right? When I was at Zappos, I was very adamant that to implement, like people needed the skill set to be able to empathize with folks, the self-awareness, right? A lot of times too, I think in EDI spaces is we're trying to go straight to what's the tactical systems level solution to fix. So recruiting strategies, HR policies, right? Marketing, communication, best practices and such. And in addition to those tactical systemic solutions, what are also the experiences of you as human, individual and emotional? And I don't think a lot of that work is being done. And so when I'm talking to a lot of folks who want to be DEI consultants or just be in equity space in general, like I'm always asking them, like, why do you want to do this? This is hard. Like, this is very triggering work Um, and emotionally laborious work. It's like, why do you want to do that? And so I want to help people. I'm like, yeah, but there's a story behind this. Right. Again, my experience when I was at Zappos and I thought I wanted to help people, too. Like I wanted I thought it was like a great thing to do. And then it was very quickly uh, realized that I needed to do a lot of my own personal work. And that time was an invitation to do my cultural identity work. And so now when someone asks me why this is important and why I choose to kind of do the strategies I come up with and even the clients I work with or what spaces I find myself in, I can clearly articulate where this has come from, right? I bring back that story of when I was nine. I bring back some other stories of aggressions and experiences throughout my career and personal life even. And those are the stories that I'm able to to like connect with other folks. And they're like, oh, yeah. This is why she does this work. I think we need to dive deeper into why we care about this work, what our personal stories are. So that's that self-awareness building. But also in self-awareness is feeling into, you know, how do I regulate my emotions? How do I 
articulate my emotions? How do I name what, it, what, what my experience is and what my feelings are? So that you eventually can start to choose how you respond. I think a lot of us are just reacting right now. And also what I'm seeing in this topic of, of diversity and inclusion work is a lot of self-learning, right? Kind of a, hey, like, let me go read some books and such. But I actually think if anything's going to move, we have to be in dialogue with one another. But it's hard to be in dialogue when we're not able to feel into what we're experiencing and then also emotionally regulate when we're working with someone or having conversations with someone that is potentially upsetting us or triggering us, right? The conversation shuts down. You know, so having the skill set of being able to emotionally regulate so that you can be in a productive conversation, it probably wouldn't be difficult, but you can still remain in that discomfort rather than leaving and shutting it all down or you just shutting down at that time. That's, I think, something we all have to start to develop so that we can start to work together and, and make the necessary changes. That's my same philosophy as well about DEI. It can't just be about systems. And I think that's what I hear a lot also from companies is it's Everything has been so binary before because I think our world has been more simplistic. So to say like literally something is black or white or it's, okay, now it's Asian History Month, so we're going to call Carissa. Now it's Black History Month. Oh, Carissa, do you know anybody who's black who can come in and do this because you're not black and now it's Black History Month and it's almost like addressing things separately. My theory is that people almost latch on to dealing with systems because it's then it's not about them, right? It, it doesn't hurt my feelings because it's the system that's wrong. It's not because I've done anything racist or bad. But as you already pointed out, systems are made up of people. So what does that look like in your work to integrate that EQ side of things or the personal side of things with DEI in general or DEI systems? Like how do you work with your clients in that way? Yeah, I think also in DEI spaces, it's knowing what your skill set is and what your knowledge base is, right? And so, yeah, I don't feel comfortable speaking on behalf of even all Asians, right? And so for me, it's starting to be like, this is what I specialize in, both from maybe identity standpoint and a functional expertise, right? So I could probably, yeah, might be really great at like doing more analytical kind of approaches. So like looking at what the representation and say all the, the metrics are right and then kind of questioning why those numbers might be the way they are and then developing some strategies from there or I, I don't have a background in hr so am i the person who should be talking about hr policy probably not i probably should like have someone else who has spent like some time in this field <laughs> same thing with marketing communications yes i know enough but like i think it's better to ping someone who has been doing this work for some time, right? And so how do we put more resources behind DEI teams so that they can hire different experts from a functional expertise, right? My strategy brain is like, we definitely need more funding in it. And so we can have a truly diverse team to look at it both from identity standpoints and functional expertise. Everything's, it's not as simple and kind of dry. You know, I too saw the conversations around race last year, especially, were very much like, okay, here are spaces for white folks. Here are spaces for black folks. And then as an Asian American, I was like, well, you know, I don't feel comfortable in the white spaces. I don't feel comfortable in black spaces more because I think they don't want me there because they want to process their own stuff too, like together in a safety, right? So where do I go, right? You know, and I did not see places for like everyone else, you know, to also process what was going on. And so I created a, a community for Asian Americans more specifically called Arise with two partners. Arises stands for Asian uh, American Racialized Identity and Social Empowerment. And the idea there was for it to be a holistic program, A, a space specifically for Asian Americans that was centering social justice, because 
there might have been some other Asian American kind of communities out there, but not really ones that were social justice focused. And that's what I want to talk about. And so I partnered with two other folks, Xing Xiaoyu, who is a um, social justice educator, and Julia Berriman, who is a somatic healer and a creativity coach. And what I brought to the table was more of that emotional intelligence and emotional processing. And so this three-prong approach was, to me, really important in helping us to, as Asian Americans, to like think about our own identities and think about what we want to do and how we want to stand up for ourselves and speak up and maybe in the roles we play in the workplace, start to activate our activism, right? So it's, again, this identifying of gaps, identifying what my strengths are. What do I care about? At the time, you know, it was like, I'm identifying as an Asian woman and I don't have a space to talk from this lens, right? And I want to meet other Asians who also want to talk about this. And so how do we find other folks who look like us so that there is that camaraderie, there is that support system, there is just someone else who can hold space for us and listen and relate to. And so that was the intention really, too, of creating these community events just to show that people could find others who wanted to talk about the same things they wanted to talk about. That sounds amazing. I could absolutely see that craving for community and how Arise could help fill that gap for people. So, Chris, I think you've accurately described yourself as a person who looks and sees the gaps and then finds ways to fill them in, in a way that suits your skill set, like aligns with what you can do and are, are passionate to do. So as I think about where we're at now in 2021 and where employers or companies are trying to go, like I see so many job postings trying to hire a blah, blah, blah of diversity and inclusion and, you know, wanting strategies, wanting this and that. You've already talked about how we need to address personal side of stuff, emotional stuff, not just the systems. But what, I guess, would be your call out to organizations that maybe they've covered the first level? So they've done some unconscious bias training. They've maybe done some awareness. They've heard some talks or watched some information about different types of racism or racism against different groups and discrimination against like genders, et cetera. What's next? Like, where do you see the gaps, I guess, that you think people need to be tackling next? Yeah, I mean, a funding, like seeing that this is as essential as, you know, your chief marketing officer and your like marketing department, right? There's millions of dollars, especially put into marketing. And so how do you start to see how this is equally as important, if not more important than any of your other verticals? I think that mindset needs to start shifting to adequately support the folks who decide to do this work, both internally and externally. And like I said, it, it really is a responsibility of every single person. Right now, I think it's like, oh, give it to the diversity people to handle and think about, right? And it is systemic. Solely one group of people cannot fix it for everyone, right? And it's really hard. Like, your question is kind of challenging, Roseanne, that you can't really prescribe a solution broadly, you know? And so when I say that, A, resourcing is really important, but how do I get leaders to think about this differently, right? And I think that's why I keep returning back to the individual emotional like connection to this topic and this work, because if we feel like we're disconnected from it, to say, hey, I'm a white male, right? What's my role in this? Yeah, you have a big role in this, actually, right? And if right now the, the common kind of thought is, hey, let me give it to like, someone else to figure this out. And like, you just tell me what to do, then it's going to be slow or it's not going to work. And so that's why I really do, again, come back constantly to the EQ. What is our connection to this work? What can we impact and affect from the role that we sit in, either professionally as, or personally, right? From the skill sets and like the things that we are able to do 
So between, I think, when you know what your skill set is and you know how you can make an impact and then where do you feel you're best suited to support that and deciding to do it, you know, and so maybe not the most like earth shattering response here of like, how do we fix it? Because this is not easy. It's not fast. And I do think it requires everyone to understand how they contribute. I actually really appreciate that answer. And I think it's entirely appropriate because what I think I'm hearing you say is don't look for a solution or even a series of solutions. Like it is very much tailored or unique to your organization, your organizational culture, your people, where they're at, what their past was or their context was, what you want to do going forward. I think we're past a lot of already sort of the the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, that you could say this applies to all organizations, go do this, go do this training or whatever. Now it's, I think, a lot of that internal, inner hard work and for an organization too, right? To look within as an organization, which then includes looking at your people. So yeah, I think there isn't really a, well, here's what you need to do next because you got to figure that out with help, but you really got to figure that out for yourself um, because it's not going to be the same for everybody. There is no, like you said, there's no prescription. That's really important. So Carissa, if you don't mind, let's end with a word of encouragement to the Carissa Begonias of today. If, you know, the Carissa Bergonia, 23 years old, you know, just graduated, entering the workforce, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know, full of energy and excitement, racialized woman, you know, going to encounter whatever she encounters in the workplace and has, you know, the similar baggages or things that, you know, had to deal with. What's one piece of advice or guidance or encouragement that you want to give this young woman? Always be curious to center or believe in your intuition to to dream and pursue your imagination and to find folks who encourage you to keep going and that there is no correct or right way to do something or path and so if the sooner you can learn understand that and that we're all just honestly making it up as we go along (laughs) (laughs) as smart as you think everyone else is. Yeah. We're all figuring it out. And so can you, right. And don't feel like you have to wait for others to give you permission to do it. High five. I love it. That's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And it's true, right? I think it's part of the model minority myth, I think, but also just we're conditioned to think, no, you do have to have it all figured out first. You have to have the degrees. You have to have the certifications. You have to prove that you've been able to do it before you do it. Uh, and that's just not the reality. You can do it. You don't have to prove anything. You can do it. Awesome. Yeah. You can do it too, Carissa. I believe in everything that you're doing. You've already made great waves. <laughs> and I'm curious and expectant to see what's going to happen next. So thank you for gracing us with your smile your inspiration, your advice, your very sound, thoughtful wisdom. It's been a joy and a privilege to have you. Thank you so much for taking your time to come on the Changing Lenses podcast. Thank you to Rosie. And this has been an honor. And thank you for just letting me share this journey of mine. It's been a wild ride and I see how fun it is now. And if I can support people in finding that peace, finding that joy in the journey, and even in the unknown sooner than later, then I'm doing my job. (laughs) Awesome. And if you want more of Chris's wisdom, please follow her on all the socials. And if you enjoyed this podcast as well, please do subscribe. You can find us on all the major platforms. 
And we also have a Facebook group if you'd like to ask some questions. It's a private group because I do think it's pretty scary and there's lots of trolls out there to you know talk smack about DEI. So feel free to sign up for that. So it's a safe place to ask some questions. And until next time, we look forward to you joining us again for the next podcast episode. And I am Rosie Young, your guide to changing lenses. Thanks for joining us. I hope we helped to change your lens and expand your worldview. And if you want to talk about today's episode with a safe community or ask me questions directly, please join our Changing Lenses Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. This episode was produced and hosted by me with associate production by William Liu and post-production by Q9. Until next time, I'm Rosie Young, your guide to Changing Lenses.